Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's co-acting director, Lisa Slade, celebrates the 2018 NAIDOC Week theme, Because of Her We Can, as she looks at art from Ernavella. Hi everyone, my name's Lisa Slade and I'm the co-acting director here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Happy NAIDOC Week. And a very special happy NAIDOC Week to all of the women of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent in the audience, in the gallery, in the city, in the state, in the country, and the world over. Woo! <laughs> the focus for NAIDOC Week this year is because of her we can. And we are acknowledging the important contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have made to this fine country. Now, I get the job at the gallery of assembling the Tuesday lunchtime talks. I should use the, the uh, more elevated word, curating, of curating the uh, Tuesday lunchtime talks, which means that in some ways I get first dibs, and I popped my hand up for this one because I thought how fantastic that the NAIDOC Week focus is on the contribution of women. And also, I have had the incredible privilege over the last couple of months of working very closely with a young woman who is non-Aboriginal, but she has been involved over the last four years with Ernabella Arts and Crafts. She came to me as part of an Australia Council-funded secondment, and her name is Hannah Cothie, K-O-T-H-E. Hannah has just in the last week, left Ernabella for the first time in four years, and she's travelling overseas before taking on other work. Work in art centres is extraordinarily high-pressured. It makes all of our day jobs look rather kind of docile in comparison. So I'm going to dedicate today's talk to Hannah and moreover to the fabulous women of Ernabella. I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey. We're going to talk about Ernabella, and I'm going to use a couple of examples that you are sitting in the company of at this point in time. As many of you would know, I do like a little bit of conversation, so I'm very happy to take questions. I'll probably talk for about 20 minutes or so, and then I'll open to the floor for you to ask any questions at all that you like. Before I kick off in focusing on Ernabella, I just wanted to share with you a fairly extraordinary experience that we've been having here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Not only are we achieving record, and I say really record in the history of the Art Gallery attendances with Colours of Impressionism, but we're trying to be in several places at once because last week on Thursday night, we launched a major exhibition in Sydney that will be coming here to Adelaide in October. The exhibition is called John Mowenjul, I Am the Old and the New, and it is the first comprehensive Australian survey of the work of Master Bach painter John Mowenjul. Mowenjul is in his 67th year. He lives in the outstations west of Manangrida from central Arnhem Land, and we've been working with John for three and a half years, Nikki Cumston and I in particular, with John Mowenjul for three and a half years. He has led us and a team of curators from the MCA on the most extraordinary journey, which has culminated in an exhibition that opened last week. If you're in Sydney, go and see it, and then come back, please, and see it here in October. It is our first truly equal collaboration with the MCA. We are absolutely honoured to be participating in such a collaboration. 
Moreover, it's one that has been led by the artist. And I can't tell you what a career highlight and a thrill it was last week to be there in Sydney launching an exhibition that places Guningu, which is John's language, front and centre of the exhibition experience. All wall texts are Guningu. So you learn Guningu or you read Guningu and you read English. You hear John Marwanjul's voice on the website as he teaches you Guningu. The selection of 168 works was led by Mawanjul and we've worked with 63 different lenders to make that selection. It felt like a very important moment on the eve of NAIDOC week and it felt like that because there are too few art histories on Aboriginal artists. The thing that we call the writing of history, historiography, the writing of history has two infrequently focused, sounds like a double negative, but you know what I mean, too infrequently focused upon the role and contribution of Aboriginal artists. People don't stop to think, well, why would you do a show on John Olson? Or why would you do a show on Brett Whiteley? But people stop to think about Aboriginal artists. Aboriginal artists have been absorbed largely into a collective treatment in the way that we've treated them historiographically, but also curatorially. There should be more exhibitions like the exhibition that launched last week that survey the life work and are led by the vision of individual artists. I'll get off my high horse and I'm going to step into Ernabella. <laughs> wow, so this thing about art history is a really interesting one for us as curators and probably I'm hoping for you as an audience too because we're often told about firsts. We're often told that the Aboriginal art movement began here or it began here or this happened here. I want to kind of contest all of that today. One of the very popular narratives, very, very popular uh, origin myths, if you like, is that Papanya in 1971 was the single wellspring of the desert art movement that we talk about today. I want to wind the clock back. We are going back to 48. In going back to 48, I'm not suggesting that 48 is the beginning of this time schedule either. It started much, much earlier than 48, but we're going to fo focus on 48. What happened in 48? 48, conveniently, an anniversary this year of 70 years, of course, Ernabella Arts and Crafts was established. It was established by women for women, probably one of the reasons it's gone overlooked and been eclipsed by a men's painting movement 25 years later. It was a movement that came out of Ernabella's status as a pastoral station. In 1937, the mission was established and in 48, the women's craft room was set up. Ernabella Arts and Crafts was born from that craft room. I'm using the C word, which is not a word I use a lot in the art gallery but I think it's also another indicator of sometimes why these histories are overlooked. If we use the C word, we don't have to name the artist. We tend to absorb practic practitioners and their identities if we use the C word. We don't expect somebody to tell us what something was made, where something was made, how it was made and who it was made by, if it's called craft as opposed to art. Aren't our histories fascinating? And of course, that's certainly the story in Ernabella. The story of Ernabella has been told, not by many, but when it is told, it's told as a story 
that focuses upon the impact particularly of the sheep station and the way in which the wool industry was uh, caressed, if you like, by that very interesting northern part of South Australia. And you know that Ernabella lies at the eastern end of the Musgrave Ranges. It lies about two and a half hours drive south from Uluru, so you drive directly south from Uluru. It lies in nestled in the Musgrave Ranges and it, it is part of the Anangu, Pitinjara, Yankanjara lands. Anangu, the people of Pitinjara and Yankanjara speakers, and in fact includes both Pitinjara and Yankanjara speakers there in Ernabella. So 1948, what happens in 48 is pretty special because it is not the imposition of Western or white culture onto Anangu women, quite the opposite. It is the resolute responsiveness of Anangu women in their transference of ancient techniques into contemporary methodologies that happens. It's a very big sentence, I'm going to unpack it for you. Anangu women, many central desert women, have been making hair string for millennia. So you take your hair, I think I'd be quite good at hair string, well at least I've got the right head of hair for it, and you take the hair and you rub with great friction, sometimes using additional apparatus, the hair to make a string. That string, like all string, becomes incredibly useful. It's the stuff that is comprised of a hair string belt. That hair string belt will enable you to not only provide a modesty belt of sorts, but probably more importantly, become the way in which you could attach various practical tools, but sometimes also the, your hunt or what you have gathered to that hair string. So the hair string belt becomes a very, very useful, sacred in some ways, but also incredibly kind of profane and very, very practical object. In 1948, the women of Onabella, who had in, in the dry creek beds rolled that hair string, start to adapt those technologies and those methods, including the use of two pieces of mulga wood or car, um, just let me get the name, acacia anura. Acacia anura takes so two pieces of mulga. Mulga is the timber that we see. It's an old wattle that grows. Wattle doesn't normally grow for very long, but acacia anura is the one exception. And it's probably one of the most important desert timbers. Acacia anura or mulga is the timber that we see Namatjira's plaques made from, for instance. Acacia anura is what the tips of kulata or spears are made from. It's very distinctive timber. You'll notice it or recognise it a mile off because it has a really extreme colour differentiation. Parts of the timber are quite light and parts are, are quite dark. So the women would take two pieces of acacia anura and wrap them together as a spindle and then they would use that to make their string, a string technology initially with hair that is then adapted to wool. And from 48 on, we start to see a proliferation of domestic crafts. I'm using my inverted commas, everybody, because once again, it kind of indicates how these things were valued or not at the time. Very early on, though, it is apparent that we are talking about collaborative work practices, and we're also talking about an, an extraordinary desert ingenuity. And the thing I like to talk about with desert practices is the entwining, a little bit like string making, of two ideas. One is tradition and innovation. Now, whitefellas have liked to see tradition and innovation as, as opposing tendencies, as two discrete things. You're either a traditionalist or you're an innovator. 
those two things are one and the same for Aboriginal culture and arguably have always been because they have enabled Aboriginal people to constantly innovate upon tradition, to push their practices into the next generation and into the next worldview, if you like, into the next ontology. That's how you survive 60 or more thousand years. So women started to adapt this hair technology, hair string technology, into wool work and started to work collaboratively. This is a practice that's not only about more than one, it's a practice that's about many generations because certain parts of a community became proficient at certain parts of this way of working. The more physically demanding aspects were carried out by the younger women and then the more technical aspects by the older women. That's the reason that when you, after this talk, you all get a chance to stand up and walk that way and look at the work that I'm just going to get Rebecca to kind of gesture to. Happens to be, Rebecca happens to be well, one of the custodians of that fine object, at least temporarily at the moment. Um, when you see that object, it will explain why it carries the label maker unknown. Now, I just want to step aside for a moment to make the point that whilst this collection has a very good example of an Ernabella woolen rug, this example comes from our very close friends at the Flinders University Art Museum. Flinders University, under the leadership of Vincent Magor, has a really exceptional Central Australian collection. Moreover, about 15 years ago, they took receipt of the Ernabella archive. So here in South Australia, at the Flinders Uni, the Urnabella archive, predominantly non-art material, a lot of written material, is actually with Flinders University. And Hannah, that I mentioned before, spent quite a lot of time during her secondment there. So what have we got? We've got a work that hasn't been attributed to the artist. I think it's called, Rebecca, can you just check on the title for me? What's the title? Thank you. The title is Woolen Rug. So clearly it doesn't really have a title. It's just been generically titled. We're told it's the 1960s from memory. Rebecca, is that correct? Now that is dated, not because it carries a date, but because of the use of colour. So by the early 1960s, the natural colours start to be combined with these synthetic colours that are starting to be used. And naphthalene dyes in particular start to make their way into the communities. And in Urnabella, artists are starting to experiment with those dyes. Now, because the labour was collaborative, because the artists were women, because it was defined as craft rather than art, you can see it's kind of made its way quietly because this institution has relished its decorative arts collection, we are very fortunate at this point in history to have these objects included within an art collection, because I can't say the same for my state gallery friends who have eschewed their decorative arts collections. Because keeping a decorative arts collection has enabled us here to mine and to, in a sense, unpack this very notion of where art begins and where art ends. That's a nice little segue to what's going on behind me. In the 19... I've just got to get my genealogies correct. I've got to get, it, got to get my dates right. In the 1960s, so we've got the women's craft room, as I said, in 48. By the way, just before I move on, just in terms of the type of imagery that's made, 
Has anyone, put your hand up if you've heard the term Walka before, Walka. Just a couple of people. people. Walka and Ernabella are one in the same or synonymous often with each other. It translates Walka in Bidinjara and Yankanjara as a meaningful mark. But the Walka, and what you see on that rug that you'll look at later on is a very good example of Walka. Some of the designs here that we'll talk about in a moment are very consistent with Walka. These meaningful marks were the type of marks that from 48 become highly distinctive marks. In fact, in some ways, they become the kind of trademark. There's a seat down the front here, Kylie. They become the trademark of Ernabella. And in those very early days, mid-century, you could recognise work from Ernabella because of the use of Walker. Walker has been decidedly communicated to the broad world as being of non-sacred content, something suitable for outsiders. This idea of concealment and revelation, of content that is sacred versus content that is profane or accessible, uh, is a really interesting kind of tension, a constantly negotiated tension, and something that we see carrying through all Aboriginal art. I would argue that it's bigger than Aboriginal art. I would argue that the idea of what can be seen and understood exists almost universally, albeit in different codes. If you step up into Gallery 14, we've actually just taken it from the wall, but I think about our earliest oil painting from the 14th century. Within that particular work, there are codes that believers can understand better than codes that, uh, for those who are non-believers. So inside and outside of audiences, really interesting thing to contemplate. So I've mentioned Anangu women, Anangu women at the beginning of this movement, Anangu women using the materials at hand as part of this craft industry. Of course, the role of women more generally needs to be acknowledged today, this week, every day. Uh, it's actually very important for us to acknowledge that so many, both today and yesterday, so many of the roles occupied as those art centre managers have been held by women. Of the seven art centres in the Anangu, Pitinjata, Yankanjata lands, there is one man working. So today women still have a very strong voice in those communities, non-Aboriginal women running those centres. And in fact, it is uh, Winifred Hilliard who is the art centre manager. She would have given her name herself a different name back in the 1960s, who becomes responsible for a lot of the exciting work that we see, including the woolen rug. Hilliard becomes friends with the uh, governess, as she then would have been known, of Frensham School in Mittagong, which is in the Southern Highlands, about an hour and a half south of Sydney. And in 1968, 1971 and 1973, there is an exchange that takes place that takes Anangu women from Ernabella all the way over to Mittagong and vice versa, Hilliard, her, Hilliard in, invites the school governess over to Ernabella. These series of exchanges result in a transference of skills and knowledge across those sites. And there was a fantastic exhibition earlier this year that actually acknowledged the anniversary of that first exchange. 
the collection is still held within that school and the school, uh, Elizabeth Nagel, who's the, the school governess, she uh, has retired but she lives today in Barrel in the Southern Highlands. So the role of women at all various stages of this process and these industries is worth acknowledging and underscoring. In 1971, there's a visiting American artist, so almost 50 years ago, a visiting, and I love this, sometimes the conduits are unexpected, aren't they? It's an American artist who introduces Anangu women to the art of batik. A visiting artist who introduces Anangu women to the art of batik. And in 1975, three artists travel to central Java, to Jogjakarta, and there they participate in a batik research centre to develop their skills, 1975. There they are introduced to the two key techniques in batik making. What we have behind us are five exceptional examples, all from Ernabella. These have come from the 80s, so they're a little bit more recent, around 1982 up to 1988. These all demonstrate a freehand or a kind of open technique with the use of a tool called a junting. I tried to find my junting at home, I had no luck, but I did find a tool that's used in the second process. And I've got it in my pocket and we're going to pass it around just so you can have a very good look at it. A junting is like a pen and it has an open spout. Inside the open spout is the molten wax. The molten wax, when kept hot, travels through the spout and you can draw quite openly with a junting. It's, like, it's a little bit like a fountain pen, a wax version of a fountain pen, and you can draw very openly. Now, looking at these particular batiks, I can see here that a junting has been used in several cases, but also there's been a lot of other experimental mark making. This work here is a very good example. See the kind of orange washes? That's pro you wouldn't put a paintbrush in wax for the obvious reason that the paintbrush would end up being stuck together with wax in a heartbeat. But this particular technique could well be leaves that have been dipped or sticks that have been dipped, something to make that kind of mark. Similarly so, you could use a junting for these dots, you could use a junting for these lines, but the cracking comes from the process of waiting for the, the, the wax to dry sufficiently and then literally scrunching up the wax so that when you dip that piece of silk back into dye, naphthalene dyes in this instance for all of these, then you will end up with that crackler, you'll end up with that kind of effect. So the junting is the open drawing tool, tulis, which just means to draw in Indonesian, in Malay. Uh, and then the other technique is the jup. And when you get to the jup, beautiful, thank you, Brian, you'll notice that the jup is a very controlled tool. It's essentially a stamp. It's made from copper, incredibly ornate. The jup that you're looking at is an Indonesian jup. It's a Chris design or a sword design, and that's coming around. Now, what was so fascinating about the exchanges that happened from the 80s and then into the 90s and then most recently in 2005. So we have the first residency, the American artist in the 1970s and then the first residency in 1975. Fast forward through to 2005 and we've got another 
Central Australian Batik Studio involved in Ernabella, and we've got an exchange between artists who are travelling then to Ernabella, and they bring with them this JUP technology. You're holding a Javanese JUP, but what the women developed, and unfortunately I don't have them to physically show you, but they developed a series of JUPs based on Walka designs. So the metal that you'll see there was shaped into various Anangu designs and JUP or stamps, T-J-A-P or C-A-P, you'll see both spellings, are used to mark the batik. Why is this important? This is important because it marks and represents a kind of prehistory of painting. 2005 was the most recent exchange, so only just over, you know, 12, 13 years ago. It's in 2005 that men are introduced into the art centre for the first time. Most of those, the art centres, including Amata, very celebrated now, Jala Arts, started as women's movements. Men came later, which is kind of contrary to the way this, the Papanya story unfolded. But women were very important, particularly in Amata, it was a women's only room, and in Ernabella until 2005. 2005 is also the year in which women start to paint more regularly. What provides the material, conceptual, cultural springboard for that painting? The experimentation that had been happening in Batik, also in wool and in ceramics. In fact, if Ernabella is distinguishable across the Yankanjara lands, it is for this material diversity, for this experimentation, a diversity that grew out very much of that 48 origin, in a sense of making do or making work with whatever lie in your midst, materially speaking. So you'll see the jap as it's coming around and you'll notice and, and hopefully you'll imagine what that would look like in Anangu terms, that you would create a pattern that you could make across the surface. These um, are as freehand batik, silks and cottons, they're quite sophisticated. There's, a num there's quite a lot of colour here as you can see. Apologies for those in the room, and a lot of you are doing this, which I'm really enjoying, nodding, so you know exactly what I'm talking about technically. Hands up if you've actually done any batik. That's probably a good thing to have a look at. Great. So you'll know that you begin with the one colour and that you block out the colour. So the way it works is as a process of resist. You lie down the wax. The, the hot wax, once cold, creates a barrier for the colour. So you can dye the piece of cloth as much as you like. I mean, obviously, it'll turn to kind of black or very, very dark in the end. This has been dyed quite a lot. But you can layer the colour so that each successive colour, it's a reduction technique, a little bit like reduction liner printing, if you've done it, where you mask the area with the wax and then at the end, of course, you boil it off. So all of that wax floats to the surface of the boiling water and you can clean it away and, and you are left with the incredible kind of alchemy of these resplendent colours. I want to go back to this idea of writing histories again just for a minute because when you come up to look at these works, you'll notice that unlike the woolen rug from the 1960s, these works carry their authors. These labels say a lot more about us than they do about art half the time. And by us, I mean us culturally, but also us museologically or as an institution. They tell us about what was collected and why it was important at, at the time. 
So when that work came into, not our institution, but Flinders, it didn't travel with its maker's details. Hannah argues that that's because Winifred would not have felt comfortable acknowledging or leaving anybody out. Hannah Clay, and I say, I'm crediting Hannah here because obviously she has, working and living in that art centre for four years, has given her this deep knowledge and an understanding of the art centre's history. But Winifred was so much into collective labour that rather than leave anybody out, she wouldn't have acknowledged anybody. Does that make sense? Art history didn't help though, because art history told us that women's labour didn't need to be individualised. Um, by the 1980s, we've kind of dealt with that a little bit. We've had the Papunya movement. We've had a greater acknowledgement of the singularity of artists. We start to know, by the 1980s, we probably know a couple of names of Aboriginal artists in addition to Albert Namatjira, perhaps. Uh, by the 1980s, though, we still haven't found a way of speaking to the subject matter in these works. And you'll notice, what do you notice? They're all untitled. All of them are untitled. Now, that's not because they're not saying anything. But in essence, that they are kind of silenced, I suppose, by not carrying titles in this instance. They're untitled because at the time, the artists perhaps wouldn't have been asked for a title for the work. They would not have been seen as art in the same way as a painting. When I stop talking today, and it won't be long off, don't worry, <laughs> you'll have a chance to have a wander around our recent display out here of desert colour. There are several examples from Ernabella, including the work of two men, one now passed from Ernabella. Their names are there, they're, the titles of the works are there, all of the works in the next space are titled, you'll notice. In fact, things have changed so much that the titling that you'll see here, in the Ken family collective painting that you can all see from there as a case in point, that carries two titles. Kangura Kangura Ku Jukupa, Kangura Kangura Ku Jukupa, A Sister's Story, and then the translation, A Sister's Story afterwards. The makers are the Ken family collective we're told the names of all five of the Ken sisters and their mother who worked with them. We're given their birth dates and the places of their birth. Kangura Kanguruku, sorry, Kangura Kanguruku, Jukupa, a sister's story, the title, the materials, and the precise location in which it was made. So these three moments, now th this work here is made by the five sisters and their mother, their mother grew up in Ernabella and the older sister was born in Ernabella. So this is an Ernabella story too. These three works from the 1960s to the 1980s to 2017-18 reveal three di very different approaches, both museologically from inside the museum but I think also externally to Aboriginal art and the way that we have received it and responded to it. I've forgotten my favourite Bidinjada uh, Yankanjada word. Milpa Juani, Milpa Juani. Milpa Juani, and you'll hear it referred to just as Milpa, refers to the marks that are made in the sand 
and it's Milbajuani, which is often cited as the point of derivation for Walker, for the Walker designs. So those designs that you see in the rug and here on the batiks, these kind of shapes here, Milbajuani, are transferences, if you like, of the kind of sand drawing that has been used as a pedagogical tool, really, as a cultural and pedagogical tool for millennia for Aboriginal people in the central desert regions. And it's that Milbajuani that becomes the reference point for the kind of mark making in wool, in wax and in paint. This transference from knowledge that we can't know about to secret stories is also a tale that's told here. Unknown maker, no title. Known maker, no title. Known maker's title. Moreover, we know from the Ken sisters that they represent their two dreaming stories, Jala or Hanian Jukuba, and the Kungurankupa, which is the seven sisters dreaming, those two stories entwine, just like the hair strings, those two stories entwine in their paintings made in the last couple of years. So we've, we have undergone quite a transformation and it's a bit of a thrill to be able to stand here uh, in NAIDOC week and pay tribute to those women, to the work that they have done, the way in which they've been responsible for bringing about this kind of radical shift in the ontology of Aboriginal art, an art that is now prized, not questioned. Interestingly, in reflecting back to Sydney last week, John Mowanjul, and John Mowanjul's uh, father-in-law, who was hugely inspirational, is represented by Kinga over here, saltwater, saltwater crocodile. His name is Peter Marawonga, who is also a Guningu man. Um, but John Mowanjul, an artist who is in his 60s today, has lived this story. He spoke last week about how in 1994 he was excluded from an exhibition which was part of the events around uh, the Venice Biennale. I think it was the Venice Biennale. No, it's not, it wasn't the Venice Biennale. It was, in, it was in Cologne and he later went on to the Venice Biennale. It was in Cologne, it was at the art fair. And he was, ex he was excluded and his gallerist was excluded well, he was excluded through his gallerist, Gabriella Pizzi, because his work was considered to be folk art or craft. So you see the way in which that nomenclature, those structures become quite pernicious in the way they tell us what to value and what not to value, what to include and what to exclude. Ironically, it was just a year or two later that his work was included in the Venice Biennale, which, as you know, is really the, first, the, the kind of foremost stage for the presentation of contemporary art in the world. I would be more than happy to take questions. There are probably a lot of things I haven't spoken about, and I'm really happy for you to ask some questions. I'm going to pass you the mic, though, so you can be captured, because we do record all of these lunchtime talks. My question is this last one on the end here, the colours are different to anything else A lot of these and what's the story behind that? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. You know, in Western, and I don't know enough about Aboriginal languages across the centre, but I do know that in Western Aranda there's no word for blue. <laughs> um, I mean, language and, and colour, we think of them as, both of them, as empirical and kind of neutral things, but they're far from it, as we well know. 
So you're right, it is, it is a step away. Although if we were to line this wall, and such is our collection of batiks, that we could line this entire wall with batiks, we would bring out um, the incredible work of Junkaya Tapia, and, and Junkaya is made of a beautiful kind of purple, a royal purple work. So you'd probably say the same about that work. The naphthalene dye technology, and I don't know how many of you have, it's quite toxic, so it's not used, it's not so popular anymore, but it was very popular in the 70s and 80s, and it's a chemical process that involves the interaction of colour. So you actually dip the batiks into a, sub, a, um, a liquid that has no colour. And it's the processes and the steps that creates the colour chemical transformation. A little bit like the way a glaze works, you know, you pop it in the kiln, one colour and it'll come out something, it'll come out completely differently. That doesn't entirely answer your question, except to say that knowing these women and knowing how uh, experimentation is something that's encouraged, nothing's off limits, chromatically. Um, I encourage you to have a look at a really interesting book that was written by the anthropologist, Sydney-based anthropologist Uta Mellenkamp, and that was called Don't, um, Don't Ask Me for Stories, which is a direct quote from Anangu women living in Ernabella who were constantly in the 1950s and 60s asked for stories about their art. So one theory has it that Ernabella Walker developed out of almost like a decoy strategy. Does that make sense? That you develop that as a way of kind of keeping people away from having to perennially talk about what your painting means. Isn't it interesting that we can experience Western abstraction without the weight of meaning, but often when people stand in front of Aboriginal art, which of course is not abstract, but you can understand it through that lens, people say, but what does it mean? So I'd, I'd kind of just ask you to reflect and pause upon that as well. I think in many cases it represents a deep yearning to understand who we are and where we are and, and, this, and this very place. And I would argue that that's something that Ernabella women artists have aided and assisted us in doing across time. Any further... Yes, I'm gonna, I'll bring this to you, sir. Well, just along those lines, how does one appreciate uh, these pieces? Uh, like, you've got expertise in these areas, presumably. When you see it, you think of it in one way, notwithstanding you don't want to know the meaning, uh, but how do people without your expertise appreciate them? Okay. Very good question. Uh, first of all, I... My expertise is limited. I mean, I don't have infinite expertise in reading these particular works or the vision of any particular artist, I suppose. So what do we do? It's a really good question. We come to it with our own understanding of the, the world. We come to it with our own understanding of nature in particular because what you can see across the surface of these works are quasi-representational forms, flowers, leaves, etc. This work has been, I didn't, I talked a little bit about the JUP, the drawing tool, uh, the, the JUP, the stamping tool, and the junting, the drawing tool, but what I didn't unpack and should have was the way in which this is a really challenging process to, in making these works in the desert. 
you can imagine, make, these would have been made probably in the art and craft room, unlike the Utopia Batiks, if you're familiar with those. They were made on country because there was no art centre per se, or no art room. These would have been made inside. But they still haven't been made with the kind of brace that was traditionally used by Javanese artists to keep the fabric stiff. You know, the type of thing you might use for embroidery, for instance? So they're free form, and I think you can see that in them. So what do I bring? What do I do? I, I look at them. I look at the depth of colour. I think about where they've come from. I think about influences and connections. I enter into a discussion with them, I suppose, where I'm kind of listening to what they have to say as works of art very similarly appreciated as, say, the paintings that you can see. There's a very beautiful visual conversation happening between these batiks and the work of Nupulia Pumani, who's the first painting you see on the right. When you come out, you'll see it. In fact, Pumani has... It looks as though she's almost used a batik method where she's covering the colour and then adding additional colours. So I appreciated on what we would call a formal or an aesthetic level. I come to it with my own interests. You'll come to it wanting, liking particular colours or not. You'll come to it hopefully thinking about some of the, the processes and the techniques. Hopefully today has given you perhaps a little bit more insight into this idea of walker or designs and why and how we create designs as methods of revelation but also as methods of concealment. So both of those things become hopefully useful in thinking about the work. I'm interested in the journey you might have when you step from the 1971 and 72 works made in Papanya by artists working there and then step across on board, on foraged board, board that was found particularly around the schoolroom in 71 and 72, uh, and then you step into this space and start to think about these works, these works as a... Um, synthesis, if you like, of experience and also of skills, a transference of skills, of sand drawing, for instance. Does that help? That's what you're all doing, isn't it? Is that what you're doing? Any other questions? I'm just uh, interested in the cloth, the actual cloth itself that's being dyed. I'm presuming that that is purchased. Yeah, the cloth um, both now and, and then. So the, there's only really one woman who works in Batik. I had a really interesting conversation with Hannah about this when she was here because what's happened now is that painting is much more valued because you can earn more through painting. So Margaret Dagg, and we have her work in the collection, she's brilliant. Margaret is the only woman who is still regularly making Batik work in Ernabella. She doesn't do it in the art centre, she brings it in, she's got the dyes and everything at home, so she brings it into the art centre and she sells it through the art centre. So really only one current practitioner of batik. But you're right, the cloth, in the early days, it was probably purloined cloth that may have been sackcloth or cottons used, because cotton's very good for batik as well, providing you wash it in the first instance to take off all of the, um, the residual resistance. And then, of course, silk. Now, silk is easy to bring into a community because it's very lightweight. Uh, so, silks would have been introduced, these are 1980s, but, you know, from much earlier, from the 1970s. And you can see these are literally 
the silks. I mean, these are just pieces of silk. There are vestments. We do have vestments in the collection, clothing in the collection. So there's sometimes there are ceremonial vestments. I haven't talked much about religion, but we could. Just as we've got these concepts of tradition and innovation seemingly antagonistic entwined, often we've got traditional belief and introduce Christianity happening in an entwined way. So artists are calling up ancestral knowledge and uh, entwining that ancestral knowledge with their religious experience, very religious community today. In fact, it's in some, some ways, you know, the, the, the way in which religion and language has worked hand in hand is very, very interesting because the Bibles were, were as you, many of you would know, were translated into Pinjara and Yankanjara. So um, often you've got that. So we've, we've got some, I can't remember, and Rebecca's not here anymore. She got bored and, and left. But I think we might have some, if we haven't got vestments, priest vestments, then at least I have seen them. I can't remember if they're in our collection or not. But I've certainly seen uh, vestments that priests would wear made from Ernabella Batik. You talked earlier about tools and you said you were passing them around. Where are they? Oh, where is it now? back here. So this, sorry, missed you. Tracy, would you mind bringing that over? So this is the jup. Um, as I mentioned before, the junting, the junting is a much more elegant pencil-like tool and you can still, I'm sure you could buy one at Premier Art Supplies and it probably only cost you about $20. Um, I did set my mother's kitchen on fire though. So there are some words of caution. Wax is highly flammable. So the, the technique du jour is to use an electric frying pan and to, because it's a little bit more stable. I was using a gas flame on a stove. Uh, and electric frying pan and you'll lay your wax into the frying pan and, and that way the jup, I'll just do a little demo if that's okay. That way the jup can sit in, the copper gets hot and then you lift it off. But you've all looked at this, so you know the level of proficiency that would be required to make a continuous pattern. Arduous work. Okay. Have an absolutely extraordinary NAIDOC week. You've got homework. Find the work of an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander woman. And I don't just mean artwork. It might be a piece of writing. It might be uh, some poetry seek out, it might be an act of politics, might be an example of activism, there are plenty of good examples. This week, hold close to your heart and in your mind the work of an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander woman. Thank you. Cheers.